This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's a new year and a new season for the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in every week to our exploration of topics surrounding how great brewers brew fantastic beers. Uh, we've got a few changes in store for this year. We're going to have uh, add a new guest host into the mix. Uh, we'll have more on that later on as, uh, as things progress. And uh, we're uh, happy to add a few new sponsors to our lineup here on the podcast. As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. With a wide selection of custom-built chillers, G&D offers everything from the Nano Chiller, the perfect solution for nano breweries, all the way up to their large capacity units like the Vertical Air Chiller built for higher volume operations. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America, America's largest craft brewing industry gathering. Join your peers in Denver April 8th through 11th. Details at craftbrewersconference.com. Without further delay, let's jump right into this week's conversation with Dave Coyne of Fort George Brewery in Astoria, Oregon. Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder of Craft Beer Brewing Editorial Director, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast this week is Dave Coyne, the barrel something or other and special <laughs> projects guy for uh, for Fort George. I just blanked on your title there. Ba- yeah, ba- I, my business card says Barrel Baron. Barrel Baron. Barrel Baron. Barrel manager. Yeah, pub brewer, car brewer, R and D brewer. R and D brewer. So I you- fun stuff. I do. I do get to do a lot of fun stuff. They spoil me. Fantastic. Well, yeah. we're going to talk about brewing from the Fort George perspective today yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to pick your brain because uh, uh, you know, a few minutes ago I was drinking a three-way IPA over here at Finn's Manor in Denver because uh, that's where we are. And uh, I was struck by you know, this fact that uh, I've had the last few years of three-way IPA. Um, it continues to be an amazing beer even though it's very different Thank every you. year. Yeah. Um, maintaining that kind of quality in a series, but at the same time, keeping some sort of thread through it, you know, to where it makes sense for people, um, is kind of a, an interesting thing. You guys produce this brand three-way and, and ship it out there into the market, um, with a different crew of collaborators every year. Sometimes it's a big, danky kind of West coast, Pacific Northwest IPA. Sometimes it's, you know, last two editions have kind of gone hazy. Last two have been hazy. Uh, tell, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about how that, that process of formulation comes about and, uh, uh, and how you uh, develop these recipes for this beer. Because, you know, this is not just a small collaboration. I mean, this is a major, yeah. major beer for you guys that goes down into widespread distribution, too. Definitely. So it's always uh, some partners that we have either a close, close relationship with or we really admire their beers or we just like how they make IPAs and uh, want to work with them. So... There's always some sort of connection we have to them, usually. So uh, we invite them out to Astoria. They hang out for a couple nights. Uh, we wine them and dine them and show them a good time and take them around the town. And over a couple days, talk about the recipe that we want to make. And then that goes to our original pub brewery, which is a 10 hectoliter, eight and a half barrel system. Last year we did, I think we did about seven test batches. The year before that, we did eight or nine. So it's so every time we do a test batch, we send a couple kegs out to uh, the collaborating breweries, they give us tasting notes back and feedback on what they would like to see different. Um, Rubens, uh, or Adam at Rubens. Seven plus seven test, test batches. batches. That's insane. It's, um, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know of another collaboration in the world of beer that goes through that many, that test, many test batches batches before it goes down. Well, la- so this last year we did 25, 120 barrel batches. So it's a really big seasonal beer right. for us. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and we have a great time. It it's, it's, makes a lasting relationship with these breweries. That we're, we become really good friends. We talk regularly and share information. And uh, I mentioned before, we sold our canning line to Great Notion. So uh, it's not it's it, the one and done collaborations are great, and we do a lot of those. And those also make some really fine beers and make great friends too doing that. But uh, we put a lot of energy into this one. Uh, we want to make sure that it comes out right and that every brewery is happy with it. And it kind of has a little bit of a 
a flavor of every brewery and that it, you can taste Modern Times, you can taste Holy Mountain, you can taste Fort George right. in one beer. So do you start from a blank slate each time and uh, or, oh, yeah. or do you have a... Yeah. No, it's always a blank slate. Uh, we usually choose one hop to be kind of the dominant profile. Uh, like one year it was Mosaic, another year it was Equinot, uh, another year it was Galaxy. So this year we used, uh, it, I guess it wasn't one that was more dominant, but we used a lot of uh, Ariana hops, which we don't, that was the first time we ever used them. Um, really in, interesting, unique German hop used in a hazy IPA. Um, what, what drew you to that one? I think I actually learned about it from Sean at Cerebral, and I, I just, it wasn't even really on my radar, but it's, a, it's just a really interesting hop to use in an IPA, I think. Uh, it has a lot of that, like, citrus uh tropical flavor that we want in a hazy ipa but it has a still like kind of like just german hop profile that is would be really nice in like a dry hop pilsner but um Mm -hmm. we just use it in bankrupting quantities on a hazy (laughs) ipa sure 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 um you know now one of the things i love about uh, you know drinking your hazy ipas and you know there's contemporaries like uh, great notion yeah is there's a character to just some of these Oregon and uh, you know Washington State uh, kind of Pacific Northwest beers, where um, they really taste like the place. You know, I described it. I mean, as you know, dankness, but right. there's this this kind of weedy character to it that uh, that seems to and and you know you even taste it in, in Boneyards West Coast IPAs. Like yeah. they are West Coast IPAs, of course, but they are they still have this kind of dankness and character. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you know, did you all just decide to go do that, or uh, is, it we, just, is this just this kind of flavor that you know drinkers and then brewers by extension in the Pacific Northwest just like and work into their beers? It's a good question. I don't know for everybody else, uh, but for us, we always kind of like to err on the side of drinkability. Sure. And uh, as amazing as some of those, a lot of those hazy IPAs are that are thickening or super thick and really sweet. Right. Uh, I don't want multiple pints of that. Uh, so we typically have a little bit more bitterness than the East Coast might be doing right now, uh, which I, f- I feel kind of balances out that's the residual sugar and sweetness that it's one of our the sweeter IPAs. So all, all of our, our hazy, the Fields of Green uh, hazy IPA rotating recipe series is usually, if, if I knew that we were going to have a finishing gravity that high years ago, I would have would have thought it'd be disgusting, but uh, it's wonderful now, and I, I love it. But we also like to have some bitterness and uh, balance to this the sugar. Sure, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think all of us that density are, yeah. are, you know, scratching our heads at how sweet beers have gotten, but how yeah. we still like them despite they are the fact that they are oh, yeah. this sweet. Well, I, yeah, I have a sweet tooth. I love candy and chocolate, and it makes sense that every once in a while, a sweet beer is great. There's but. something about human development that I think is naturally inclined towards that. That you know, we, oh, yeah. we get back to this kind of you know survival level high, high reward beer. It's all right. this is tons of calories. This will keep me going for a while. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I may not eat for a year, but I have got to <laughs> drink all this beer right now. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. But at least I got this milkshake IPA. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about Fields of Green. You know, that's a, yeah. that you just mentioned it's a, a rotating recipe series, which is so hot right now. It is. So that was partly built out of just our, our production method. So we, um, we can and distribute in Oregon, Washington, and a little bit of Idaho. And uh, we wanted the, the versatility that these that a lot of the smaller breweries that are opening up, stickering their cans. We're really envious of their ability to do that, but we kind of need to buy cans in large like we buy like 28 pallets at a time so sure you all are producing over 20,000 barrels of beer a year we're probably going to hit just about 25,000 this year right yeah uh, so to be able to do that on our 30 barrel system and and actually get that beer out to people didn't really make sense for us to invest in a, a labeler at least not now at, at that point um, so it, it kind of give us give us versatility of being able to try new hops and try new ideas of uh different malts in a, in a hazy IPA and, and still make it the same ABV, ABV put in the same package and uh, spread it out. How do, uh, how do consumers take to that? I mean, do they like the, the fact that it's new all the time or oh, do yeah. you find it being frustrating for some? That uh... No, they love it. The, the, the frustration was, uh, one, it's, so it's a hazy IPA. N- now it's definitely a hazy IPA. Originally it was, it's a whatever IPA. <laughs> and we made one, we, we did one where it was a, we, we name it like Hurricanes with a different name. So I think the second batch was Brutus. 
We did that same recipe with our uh, ESB strain that we use for our clear IPAs, our West Coast IPAs. So it clarified and was not a hazy IPA, and uh, people didn't like that. <laughs> they just wanted to know that it's a hazy IPA. Yeah. So as long as we do that, everybody's happy. Now for a quick break and a message from one of our sponsors. Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need in every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Now back to our conversation. From a consumer perspective, do you think that uh, you know that's just the visual cue, uh, or does it actually change the taste of the beer? I think there is something to the the density and the mouthfeel of, uh, and it, it, even if it's not actual, it's the perception and the whole experience of drinking a beer. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I wish we could make more clear IPAs. As much as I love the hazy IPAs, but this is kind of where the market's going at the moment, and we're stoked about it all the same. But now, it, it took you guys a little bit, a little while to, to jump into that hazy IPA game. And, uh, you know, you've, you've got your own internal challenges and debates between the folks that run and operate the business. And, yeah. uh, you know, as with most businesses, it's, it's not a monoculture where everyone has the same ideas about what you do. But you have sure. to, you know, work and, and negotiate between those and, and figure out what, that, what makes sense to the brand and your consumer, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and you did jump into those hazy IPAs eventually. I yeah, eventually. I mean, we we're definitely behind the curve of uh, of New England, I suppose. We, I wouldn't want to leave a beer style unexplored. What I'm saying is, the first time I went to Astoria, <laughs> right, I yeah. hear this: we're never going to make a hazy IPA. And oh then really? The, the next year, I go to Astoria and see you guys. Like, oh shit, you guys are making hazy IPAs. I don't know who said we would never. I oh, I, I think you know who said that. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's funny is we. We didn't use to filter. We, we had a centrifuge briefly, but it uh, was, wasn't really sized for us. Um, but we, we've, we biofine our, our beers and, and our West Coast IPAs, our, our Vortex IPA and our Optimus IPA. We try to make as clear as possible. But um, for a long time, it, it looked like a chunky, yeasty, hazy IPA. It was just unfiltered. It was almost kind of like, like how a Keller Pills has some haze. Um, and... Uh, we would constantly get emails or complaints that like there's stuff in my beer. <laughs> and so then we started, we were like, all right, well, let's put a lot of energy into making it look great. And then as soon as we did that, then the new, like super fashionable to make it hazy. But I don't think it's just about the appearance. I do. I, I really think the, the, the grist and the yeast choice and the dry hopping rate, uh, the, the end result is a, a, the byproduct is it's hazy. But I think all those, uh, all those processes and ingredients, really do make a much different beer that um, it's 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 worthy of being drank for sure it should be a style and I'm so let's it. talk about some of those processes so yeah. you know when you are you know formulating a recipe um, you know are, what additional kind of uh, you know malt character are you pulling out uh, oats wheat um, you know how do you how do you build a grist bill to kind of add some of that extra body to it I'm a big fan of oats okay we use a lot of wheat what uh, kind of percentages in your recipes oh uh, at least 30. Oh, 30. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, well, sometimes I've used up to 30, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little that higher. Sounds like a gelatinous and mess to it me. Just, but. Yeah. Is it, well, there are some stuck mashes that happen in the brewery. Uh, we, on, the, on our city of dreams, hazy pale ale, uh, there's no oats, all white wheat and flaked wheat. Pretty high percentage. A lot of rice holes need to go into that. Uh, but then on this last year's three way, it was golden naked oats and flaked oats. Uh, so we kind of change it up, uh, but we do want a lot of that uh, flaked oat and wheat to kind of give it that pretty dense, thick mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. Are there other other you know barley considerations? Uh, you know, I, or do you pulling in much flavor out of that? And, I, uh, yeah, I, t- I I love I love pilsner malt. Uh, okay. So we we have two row in our silo. So we always kind of split the difference with two-row and Pilsner. I also like splitting my base malts for some reason. It oh. might just be all in my head, but I think it's <laughs> like adding like the slightest bit of more depth. Um, but so we add a lot of Ironman Pils, uh, definitely some white wheat, and either flaked oats, flaked wheat. Uh, we've used flaked barley. 
uh, on the collaboration that was just released with OMF, Chris Knife, that has Maris Otter in the bass, which was a weird one, but gives weird like what a, way? I just I, I don't I I don't like a lot of malt character in my hazy IPAs, and that one has. I mean, it turned out great. It turned out fantastic, but it was this like interesting kind of toasty British malt character hiding in the background of all that like juice and tropical uh, hop character. Isn't it, I like I like playing around a little bit and, and, and fun. We have another brewer who did a, a rye hazy hazy IPA. What's um, what does your hop addition uh, you know technique look like? How, how much are you you know throwing in a hot hot side? Uh, you know what are you targeting around for whirlpool and then uh, how much right. ends up out there in the dry hop? So uh, we do two hop additions in our hot side uh, at the beginning of boil. This the tiniest amount. Uh, yeah. You could almost just like put one pellet in there. Really, it's it's <laughs> it's almost insignificant what we're putting in. It's uh, I think on the. On a 30-barrel system, it's like 0.2 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, tiny, almost nothing. Uh, and then then we go straight to our Whirlpool. I know a lot of brewers will cool down in the Whirlpool, so they get less isomerization on the Whirlpool. We just kind of temper back our, our amount. We go anywhere between 6 to 12 pounds in the Whirlpool, which is maybe even a little high for, for what some of these brewers are doing, um, other breweries that are doing hazy IPAs. And then we dry hop typically around 4 pounds per barrel. So you're doing in the whirlpool six to twelve pounds per barrel. So sorry, six to twelve pounds total. Total for Did a thirty barrel yeah. batch. So total for thirty okay. barrel. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, dry hop with three and a half to four hundred ch- some change sure. pounds per barrel typically. Um, are you doing during active fermentation, or are you? Uh, we've done that a little bit. It's uh, we did that on the Chris Knife, the collaboration with OMF. Uh, that was. That was kind of scary, getting okay. on the top of a 120 barrel batch during fermentation to, to dry hop. Yeah. Uh, so we, we typically, and also we, production brewery, so we have to get the yeast and make another beer sure, in two days sure. later. So um, we typically let it, let it uh, finish fermenting, drop the temperature down to about 68 to have some of that yeast flocculate out as much as we can, uh, harvest the yeast and then dry hop with four pounds per barrel and then rouse for like four to six days. Okay, so that's you, know, you find rousing uh, what improves contact time with like, the hops. Yeah, so I know there's a lot of research on um, all the. Ad- when you say the rousing, be- you're just bubbling CO two through. Shoving a bunch of CO two in there, right. yeah. Uh, there's a lot of research saying that all the the hop oils have been pulled out within like 12 hours. But when we kind of do sensory and do different test batches, I I'm fully fully sold on rousing for several days. It uh, yeah, really helps the aroma. What do you, what is it, just intensity or does it, you know, change or improve the actual character? Intensity. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, maybe we should switch gears now. We've, we've talked about your hoppy beers. Yeah. Um, you know, since uh, Barrel Baron is in your title. Barrel Baron. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the Fort George Barrel Age program. Now, yeah. Fort George is a brewery for, for a number of years you've run a, uh, Festival of Dark Arts, uh, a stout-only beer festival. Yeah. Um, you all have, have been all in on big beers for a very, very long time um, and have a reputation for brewing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, your, your barrel program has, you know, has a, a lot of years of experience in it, and uh, now you're entrusted to it. Um, how, how has... Uh, I mean, let's talk a little bit about how you formulate recipes for uh, stouts and then barley wines you know, yeah. that you intend to then... Uh, you know, rest in a barrel, and then we can talk about your barrel aging process after that. Yeah. Uh, formulating a recipe for the barrels. I typically it's going to be a, a little. I wouldn't want to drink them fresh. Sure. These sure. beers, yeah, they're they're going to be. What do they taste like? Fresh. A little hot, a little bitter. Yeah. Uh, they're they're just a little unbalanced and kind of not quite, especially when we've added spices in some in some of these beers, uh, put some spices in the whirlpool. They're a little too intense, and then yeah. after they barrel age and sit for about a year, uh, mellow out and uh, all those flavors kind of meld together really nicely. So how do you how do you target like you know as you're mentally designing this recipe, right. you know how do you I mean being able to consider what's going to happen over that course of the year in a barrel or year plus, uh, you know. What are some of those recipe considerations that you then add back in, and how do you how do you visualize, and then how are you also able to test those assumptions that you know that are in your head 
versus how the actual beers turn out? So I think it depends from beer to beer. I also think part of the beauty of barrel aging is that you don't always know. Yeah. And, uh, and I also like to treat a lot of our stouts kind of like uh, a similar way to, to Lambic producers where the same wort and then it just gets fermented in different barrels and then it's either just going to get uh, turned into a creek or a frambois. Or, and so we take this like almost like a base beer of stout and then we kind of fiddle with it in the barrel. So we'll add a lot of uh, spices and or cocoa nibs or fruit and whatever we want into the barrel. And then um, sometimes so it doesn't So you're basically out what we just want. bring blending stock then, you know, not necessarily. Some, sometimes, not, not okay. always, but, but, but uh, in some cases, yeah. I'm I like, swear I don't know to you, I've what seen names be. of individual beers on some of your barrel logs. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they do have some intention. For they do have some intention, but yeah. sometimes it's like, Let's put an oatmeal stout in there, okay. and then we don't know whether we were going to just release it as that, uh, or we're going to kind of blend it with another one, or we're going to add peppers to like we some kind of up in the air sometimes. Yeah. And uh, like with Matryoshka, is our uh, Russian Imperial Stout that we age in uh, one variety of bourbon barrels or another, and uh, sits in there for a year. And then we always do variants. The variants, uh, the ingredients stack up in itself, just like a Russian Nesting doll, little Matryoshka doll. So we don't know what the variants are going to be. And we don't really tailor the beer towards like, all right, well, we're going to add coconut this year. So let's change this part, part about the malt. It's just always, it's always that beer. And then we always kind of fiddle with it afterwards. Do you, you know, for any of those variants, uh, select out barrels that have specific characters as they oh, yeah. develop that, yeah. that complement those ingredients? So there are some barrels that like last year we did vanilla beans and vanilla and marionberries berries, uh, with the two variants. And, uh, I definitely picked the barrels that had a lot more pronounced vanilla character to go into the uh, the, the vanilla and the vanilla marionberry. Um, the year before that, we did a cocoa and cocoa and raspberry. So kind of picking barrels that had like a little bit more of like a dark fruit character for, for the raspberry. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you mentioned these beers go in, you know, as they go into a barrel, they are hotter and they are more bitter than, uh, than you know, they will come out. Um, when you're considering bitterness, I mean, you're not just doing it with hops, you're also doing it with, uh, you know, a lot of roast, roasted malt. Lot of roast malt. Yep. Um, I don't know what you do with smoked malt about that or if that's any component. Um, but, but what are your kind of, you know, what are your rough ideas, you know, uh, you know, for grist bills for some of these stouts and, uh, how do you design it specifically so that, uh, um, you know, you know, with some bigger percentages of these, uh, dark and roastier malts you know, in right. order to get that, but without also, I mean, you still want to, balance that with those chocolate notes too because those are sure. pleasant things for consumers to drink yeah i think i think finishing gravity has a lot to do with that okay. uh, i also i like to add some some like sweeter more caramelized malts in there to kind of balance that bitterness of the, of the black malt so i could just like just like the base malt uh, i often add uh different different love bonds of crystal malts okay and or uh, are there some that you like more than others I really like 120. Okay. That's a really nice one. Um, but I'm constantly finding out about more malts that are comparable, but with a little more unique tasting. Um, but uh, I really like Brees uh, Roasted Barley. It's a much lower level bond. So it's like a 300 level bond compared to a typical English Roasted Barley, which is 500. So it gives like a really nice uh, chocolate character, really beautiful, like deep red hue, but it doesn't give a lot of that bitterness. So you can kind of load up with some black barley or other other more bitter black malts, and then have some other malts that have a little more depth of character, and yeah, helps balance that. Yeah, you have to use these you know bitter malts with a pretty deft hand. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you know, small percentages of these go a long way, um, but but what do those percentages typically look like for you? I, I mean, I know on our small 10, 10 hectoliter system, I know typically about 70 to 100 pounds of black malt is going to get me a really nice, deep, rich, intense stout. So, I mean, it's about 10, like a little less than 10%, which is a lot. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. It can be a lot. Um, but when we're giving it 12 to 18 months aging, it kind of works out really well. Do you have any, you know, IBU or, you know, actual bitterness goals in mind for that? We don't. Um... Jack Harris, one of our founding brewers and owners, uh, 
has done a lot of talks about how much he dislikes IBUs in the industry. We, I do use them from time to time, but a, a lot of it's just going off of feel and, and uh, knowing what works for us when I use four pounds of Cascade in, in, a, in a beer. And, um, but I'll usually plug it into Beersmith or some other brewing program and, and kind of get like a rough estimate of what kind of bitterness I'm having in there. But how about sweetness? You know, what, what kind of gravities uh, are you brewing to for these these beers that go into barrels? Right. It depends. Uh, we've put put beer in barrels that finishes like ten sixteen, which is pretty pretty dry. That's for for a barrel aged out. That's right, uh, right. I mean that's where our hazy IPAs end up. But we've done all the way up to ten thirty. Uh, I've talked to a lot of other breweries that are like, oh yeah, my it finished at ten sixty. Like, that's too sweet for me. <laughs> yeah. It's great that they want to do that. It's a little too sweet for me. Yeah, um, yeah. We, like I, I mentioned before, we always kind of try to err on the side of drinkability. So um, like 1026 is like kind of my sweet spot for, for barrel aged stout. No pun intended. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. But I, we were talking about our Matryoshka earlier and, and uh, I think it would probably do better in competitions or maybe would, I don't know, get traded a little better if it was sweeter, but it, I want people to be able to drink a full 12 ounces and not be uh, be overwhelmed by sugar. It's not necessarily a beer that you must share because you can't finish a full glass. It's uh, we want we want it to be on the drier end, but we're slowly boosting up our sweetness. Um, uh, you know, we had this yeah. conversation last night. Well, we both had a little bit to drink. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> but yeah. but there is something to that, you know, and, and I think that you know that's something that as brewers, you know, brewers talk about. Oh, yeah. um, the you're not just making beer for yourself. I mean, that is part of it. You're you're designing beer that needs to reflect your brand and that should speak to what you are as a brewery. Sure. And that's very important. It is also equally important to brew beer that resonates with consumers that are buying the beer because this is a business and, and you're and making pe- you're making beer for people. Sure. Yeah. I'm not and, making it. For, that's I can't drink seventy bourbon barrels of Matryoshka. Right. right. Uh, and so there is that there is so that's a valid question and that's where you you know you, you pursue this and uh, you know and there are certainly breweries like the brewery who uh, in Placentia who are you know happy pushing twenty percent beers with a whole lot of residual sweetness they and do they, a killer job and at they it, yeah. do a great job at it and they yeah. do it in a way you know with a very with a clear intention that these yeah. are beers to be shared you know sure. and uh, and they package them in seven hundred fifty milliliter bottles now you know in order to make sure that you're sharing them because. My God! If you drink one of those by yourself, right? Which, you You'd know. be right. Um, yeah, and, and so there is that idea of consumption mode and the way that these beers are going to be drunk that yeah. can actually figures into the you know the the whole design of the beer itself from the start. And and the industry does seem like it's getting shifting towards sweeter beers in general. I think brewers. We were talking about this earlier too. Brewers just want to drink a pilsner. Uh, so it's I I want to find that again. No pun intended. That sweet spot. And residual sugar of what's drinkable, so we can have a whole pint or a whole twelve ounces at least of, of like you know, twelve and a half, thirteen percent beer, but also satisfy the the drift in the customer's palate towards sweeter beers. So I don't want to go overly sweet. I also don't want to go unpalatably dry. I'm trying to find a really nice balance here. Some of these, I mean, you know, you're every year as you you know brew these things, have to consider where things are now. You know, because yeah. this does drift over time. This is not a, you know, consistent, uh, you know, point to, to shoot for. Um, you know, totally. we certainly, I mean, with all stouts, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, you know, stouts were much more bitter and much more dry. And uh, and now, I mean, you know, this trend, but, yeah. but it continues to change and it continues to seem to, you know, get sweeter right now. Well, and I think that, the, I think all beers should constantly be updated and modified and improved uh, that we're producing. So our Vortex IPA, one of our kind of, I don't think that Jack likes to use this term, but our flagship IPA that uh, kind of helped build our brand, we've slowly been improving that over the years and uh, cut out a malt, added a malt, changed the finishing gravity, changed the dry hop. Uh, sometimes it's out of necessity of availability of hops. Sometimes it's out of like, you know, this isn't doesn't quite feel like the IPA that we want to drink and that is like keeping up to date with what a modern IPA is so we right. slowly modify it but without changing the character or the heart of what that beer really is um, so it's it's hard to kind of balance those two things of do you just kill the brand if it's not doing well or do you just change the recipe entirely and 
Uh, we try to just make small improvements to, uh, to make what we hope is a better beer and what people want to drink. There are certainly brewers out there, and uh, you know, I have great respect for them, who believe that their beer is the recipe that, is the, that they originally created for that beer, and that that is that, and right. it'll never change, and you know, uh, it is you know immutable. And there are other brewers who I also have great respect for, who uh, you know come to that standpoint of the beer is the way that the consumer perceives what that brand is, right. and you know we want that consumer. We will change that recipe, you know, and evolve that recipe so that that consumer will continue to perceive the beer in the way that they initially perceived it. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, even Henry Vermunkish was, you know, talking about that on the podcast that, uh, you know, that continuous, you know, new consumer, you know, uh, reaction to the beer is what really matters more so than any particular recipe. I agree. Yeah. I think... Uh it, there's something definitely to be said for this is what this is the recipe this is what that is and that that's all it can be and that's fine if, if that's the way you want to approach your your brands uh, but I think we want to kind of like you said it's a business and we want to keep up with what the consumer wants to drink so if the consumer wants a sweeter beer like we want to give them those options doesn't mean that everything's going to get sweeter but uh, yeah we're not entirely selfish with our beer right. but we also don't want to make beer that we're not proud of or don't want to drink so um, Speaking of other sweet barrel-aged beers, uh, yeah. let's talk about barley wine for a little while. That's, yeah. I think, a subject that I've never discussed on the podcast. Oh, let's so do it. Far. I love barley wine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and you're, you're known to, to say that it may be life from time to time. I I don't say that. You don't say that. But it, I've heard that once <laughs> you, or twice. You've heard yeah, yeah. Somebody has said that <laughs> once or twice. Yeah. Um, but, but you all uh, brew quite a few yeah. barley wines. We love and, barley wines, yeah. uh, you know, And you also throw those into barrels. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about how you, you know, what, what are your design considerations around these barrel-aged barley wines? And uh, yeah. why do you, you know, how are those recipes being uh, developed? And what are your goals when you're developing them um, in order to create this? And what's your idea of this end product from yeah. them? We've we've done a few in in barrel aged or barrel aged barley wines, and they were kind of different styles. We had our tenth anniversary barley wine that our head brewer Mike did. It was it was delicious. Uh, it was a, a little bit. It leaned more towards the American style. It was very hoppy. It used some some modern hops, and that one really bitter, really hoppy out at the in the beginning. And then twelve months in Pinot Noir barrels, delicious. Uh, I did one. Did you call it American barley wine? I don't think we did. I think we just said barley wine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that one, I think he added some specialty malt, but it went through a really long boil uh, in typical barley wine fashion uh, to get a lot of that caramelization. What's really long? I believe that one was three hours, which yeah. all things considered compared to some other sure. boils isn't that, sure. that long. But um, for our production schedule, that was really long. Yeah. Uh, I did, we just tasted it over at Finn's Manor. Uh, I did a Sign of the Wolf barley wine. That spent six months in Pinot Noir barrels, and then I moved that over to Bull Run uh, bourbon barrels for another year. That was definitely intended to be a more English-style barley wine, so much sweeter. That finished closer to does like 1028. Uh, that one had a lot of specialty malts. In English tradition, you just take whatever pale malt, Turo or whatever, and just boil it for like six hours, and then and then that's all your caramelization and depth of, of uh, flavor. I wanted to speed that up a little bit or just use some specialty malts. <laughs> right, like, right. Uh, so also taking a cue from uh, Sukaba, which is one of my favorite barrel-aged barley wines. Yeah. Uh, gleaning some information off the Firestone website and looking at what specialty malts they were using and then kind of taking into consideration what I've made in the past. And uh, so that one had C75, C120, roasted barley and chocolate malt and a lot of Golden Promise and Maris Otter. Not a lot of hops. It was actually, I, I guess I have to take it back from what I said before that a lot of these beers that go into barrels don't taste good at first. That one was delicious. I could have <laughs> drank it straight out of the tank. Uh, but all the, all the character that got pulled out of the barrels um, really enhanced it. And I think all the oxidation that kind of slowly happens over barrel aging is important to those styles as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, are are when you're choosing between stouts and barley wines, uh, are there specific barrels that you prefer for each? Um, different characters that, that uh, you like to, to get into those beers that way? Not quite. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I've mentioned Pinot Noir with the uh, barley wines twice now. So I, mean, I guess in some sense, I really do like that dark fruit 
flavor coming out in a barley wine. That like date sugar raisiny character. Yeah. Is, uh, big fan of that. Now, are those you know with those beers are those all in port barrels, or are you blending some of those with some bourbon to kind of get some heightened sweetness out of that? So our our tenth anniversary, the uh, the hoppier barley wine that was one hundred percent Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley uh-huh. um, in Oregon. Sort of my blending. So so we've done I've done like 50-50 blends before. Uh, the sign of the wolf transferred from one, one barrel to another. For a while, we were just kind of going with just bourbon or we'd get a big load of rum in and just do a bunch of rum barrel aged beers but we're kind of getting a little more diverse with our, our uh, selection right now so we have cognac we have brandy uh, Jamaican rum we got some cognac punches coming in soon so a lot of different different stuff going on probably wine isn't nearly as popular as a barrel aged stout <laughs> a barrel aged stout is kind of like it's almost like saying IPA for barrel aged beers like it's it, yeah. it sells way faster uh, so I, f- I feel like barley wines are almost like they're like the pilsner of strong ales that like <laughs> brewers, a lot of brewers really love them yeah, and they have a yeah. small following right. but they don't quite have the same sales velocity as an IPA and uh, it, it's so it's or even a barrel aged stout or even a barrel aged stout yeah. exactly yeah so it's yeah. Uh, that is whenever an, I pitch that, it that's an interesting point yeah and uh, in fact I, you know it was had a beer geek friend of mine come up and talk about how he was trying to get his local brewery, you know, to, to make this barrel-aged barrel barley wine. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is going to be huge for them. Like, you know, if you look at it from the commercial perspective, it's not. Right. Like, this, this, these are labors of love. You don't make a barley wine in order to sell it or to sell it fast. I mean, I, yeah. there is a small group of people that love barrel-aged barley wines and barley wines. Um, but it's still a pretty That's small... That's a good group of people. <laughs> they're, they are smart. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's still now, very small. Now you're just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, our longest sitting bottle that we've had is a bourbon barrel aged wheat wine that I did. How long did it take you to sell it? Oh, we still have it. Still we, have still, it. we still have like two cases, and it's been sitting around for about a year and a half. Okay. But it's, as far as wheat wines goes, it's, it's delicious. Uh, I, I was really proud of it. But when it's sitting up there next to a Russian Imperial Stout with vanilla beans... It just uh, doesn't really doesn't really compete. Why? Why is that in the mind of a consumer? Why is that? Why does that stout sell better? I mean, you would think that the stouts with all of that roast and kind of bitterness would actually be less, you know, appeasing right. than uh, you know a barley wine. Than a more approachable, yeah. Right. I, I don't know. Barley wine is just a little bit sweeter and a little, you know, a little smoother and yep. uh, doesn't have as, lighter, as much yeah. of those kind of you know, rough edges. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the the popularity of stout. It's a it's a wonderful thing for us. We love it. I, you mentioned our festival of dark arts. Yeah. Last year we made twenty seven different stouts. Um, we we are big fans, but uh, I don't know what it is. What are uh, let's shift gears again? What are some yeah. of the more interesting approaches to stouts that you've uh, you've explored, and uh, what have you learned from? I mean, because when you're brewing twenty seven different stouts, yeah, uh, you've got to do some different and interesting things to try to try to get there. And I'm sure some of them worked, and some of them didn't quite work as well as you sure. wanted to. Yeah. What are uh, What are some of your you know, things you're most excited about, and what were uh, What did you learn from some of the ones that didn't work very well? So, so we always let uh, everybody in the brew in the brew staff have a chance to make a beer first out month, uh, and we we let them rotate through the the pub system throughout the year. But uh, to get this big lineup of stouts. Uh, everybody has the opportunity to submit a recipe, uh, even servers and dis- distributors that, that we work with, and or our, our own distribution company nice. can make a um, can make a stout. And you do have have your own distribution have, arm of your business. Yep. Right. Yeah. So we distribute along the Oregon coast and up into Washington a little bit. Uh, our beers and also other breweries. Uh, yeah. And uh, but yeah, what we've learned. Especially doing the the blind tasting after they're all on tap throughout February for Stout Month. I know I mentioned being erring on the side of drinkability, but uh, kind of having a heavy hand with some of these ingredients is important. When you say that there's Pinot Noir in a Stout, I want to be able to taste it, even if it's balanced. It's totally fine, but it, it has to. I want to know that it's there. Um, there's some beers where we've added a variety of ingredients and. We've always kind of thought, oh, if we go too heavy on the rosemary, it's going to be gross. So then it's like, well, there's a hint of that, but it's not quite there. Uh, so I, I keep upping my uh, my amounts on, uh, on different additions. That's a good point. It's one that uh, you know. In fact, it was in our brewery accelerator down in San Diego, uh, Winslow from Pure Project made that point. Like you know, yeah. 
people, you know, if you're going to add fruit to a beer, people want to taste the fruit in the beer. Oh, yeah. Now you're, you're marketing it as having this fruit in it. It's like people want... It better be there. They want a shitload of fruit. So yeah. just put more fruit in there. Give them what they want. Especially when it's a $20 yeah. bottle. Right. And you say, this has cocoa nibs and raspberry. If it's a hint of raspberry, right. somebody spent you know, fifteen, twenty dollars, whatever, however much is yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's not a cheap product. Um, you want to know it's there. Yeah. And, you know, maybe eventually consumers will come around to that idea that, uh, you know, using second use fruit and beer, uh, you know, creating a more delicate, nuanced you know, experience of that fruit uh, yeah. can be valuable. And it's great from a brewer's perspective because uh, yeah. you can reuse fruit and uh, make these beers with, uh, you know, leftover you yeah. know, from a, from your, your first use stuff. Uh, but in a, but still, if you were to pull most consumers, I mean, even though I love these second-use fruit beers, uh, I know that those are not what consumers on Untapped are going to rate the most high. Sure. Uh, yeah. They're yeah, still yeah. going to want to taste something that tastes intensely jammy and over the top. I think I've heard Jester King talk about that, that they do, I think it's Atrial Rubicite, has yeah. uh, tons of raspberries, and then they do a second-use raspberry, and it's right. more it's more delicate and nuanced. Vague Recollection, or no, that one, I think. Has uh, wine grapes. Uh, yeah. Demi Tone is another one they do with second use fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah some some yeah, fantastic beers. Yeah, beautiful beers, but uh, yeah, consumers want to be able to, they want to get punched in the face with the ingredient a lot. Not all the time, but uh, especially when you're competing with the intensity of a lot of these stouts, you got to really pack it in there. So, you know, speaking of that, you know, you're using expensive materials and things like vanilla matroshka. I mean, yeah. we all know the price of vanilla is absolutely it's insane. insane these it's days. ridiculous. Um, what are what's some some of the techniques that you use to maximize the effect from those ingredients, those adjunct ingredients that you're adding into your beers? So I first I tried putting them in a Vitamix. That didn't yeah. work so well. No. So uh, painstakingly cutting them open, slicing out the uh, all the the beans inside, or you know, all the seeds, all the good stuff, yeah. the seeds, the good stuff inside, and then just letting that sit in the barrel for about a month, month and a half. We let it sit in there for. For a little while, for sure. Uh, we've done other vanilla beers where it's a really small amount and it's in the fermenter for a week or so, uh, but we let it sit in the barrel for quite a long time. Uh, I think we've done like three months uh, additions into barrels. Uh, the ABV of the beer kind of will help pull out a lot of that that ingredients and the flavor. Yeah, so I think the Matryoshka this year was twelve and three quarter percent ABV, so it'll get it all. Yeah. yeah, the alcohol itself does its own extraction. Yeah. Huh? Okay. Uh, are there any other ingredients that you've learned or found interesting, uh, you know, results from using them in, uh, in unpredictable ways? I found getting cocoa nibs out of a barrel is a real pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the uh, coconut adds a surprising amount of sweetness. So that's another one that uh, I have a beer that's in barrels that. It's a little, little dry for me. I was thinking about adding coconut to that one to kind of help sweeten that one back up. Uh, we've used... Which is funny that you say that because you're not going to sweeten it back up just by well, using coconut necessarily. Maybe, no. maybe a little adds well, a little there's all bit the per- of sugar. Perceived sweetness, it's I guess. It's the perceived, yeah, perceived sweetness. Yeah, right. exactly. And so, you know, and it, but it's funny that you can think about it that way. Right. That you're not actually adding sweetness. I'm not, add, I'm not adding sugar. I'm not adding right. a fermentable, but right. it will... Yeah. But that addition of that coconut flavor itself yeah. will heighten the you know drinker's ability to pull what sweetness is there out yeah. of the beer. Well, and it also it also changes the mouthfeel. Like the vanilla beans, when you add, uh, I think we were adding half a pound or three quarters of a pound uh, per bourbon barrel. Uh, that changes the mouthfeel considerably. Yeah, it makes it really nice and silky, and it's, it's really interesting. Hmm. That it, it doesn't really add sweetness, but it changes how you experience the beer. It's really cool. There any other ingredients that uh, you know that you found uh, interesting ways to add or use that have those kinds of effects? We like to use a lot of local fruit, um, so we'll use uh, Marion berries, which is interesting because it adds a little bit of tartness to it. Yeah. Uh, we every year we make a beer called Spruce Bud, so the whole brewery goes out, harvests around 400 pounds, 500 pounds of spruce bud, uh, spruce tips right off the, the trees. That one's really interesting because. It has such a perceived sweetness. So it's just two-row spruce tips, no hops, no specialty malts, really simple beer. Uh, but it, it reminds me of like juicy fruit gum. It's really sweet and fruity, even though it's not sugary. It's really, really sweet. It's, it's awesome. It's funny you say that. Um, you know, so at our Astoria Brewers retreat where Jack Harris oh, yeah. uh, came, you brew, he brewed one year uh, with a small brew group, yep. uh, Spruce Tip Ale. Oh, yeah. And went out the night before they brewed 
harvested fresh spruce tips. Um, that beer, after we got it back and fermented it and, and bottled it uh, uh, at our, well, anyway, I won't talk about the details and okay. the particulars <laughs> of that, yeah. but um, I would blind taste it to, to folks and, and ask them, what, what's the ingredient in this? Yeah. And there's not a single person who could have identified spruce. that beer oh, yeah. as spruce as a spruce tip beer. Yeah. And it, it was really interesting to, to see that, you know, people's assumption around what spruce tip tastes like and what it yeah. actually tastes like are very different. Because, very different. I mean, you know, when you actually drink it, there are, you know, grape and berry notes. Uh, like you say, they like, yeah. could t- taste like a light raspberry, maybe a little hint of blueberry in there, too. I had a lot of brewers trying to guess what hops were in there. Yeah. No hops. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, and we, I did a collaboration with uh, Block 15. We did a, uh, a, a wild ale with spruce tips. And so it fermented it, everything out. Uh, so it's bone dry. But it had this really interesting, almost like like a candy necklace, like that compacted compressed sugar taste yeah. to me. Like it wasn't sweet, but it had that like like a candy fruitiness. It's, re- right. it's a really interesting ingredient. We're a fan of that one. And we yeah. have tons of spruce around our area, so it works out <laughs> great. But, yeah. uh, you know, so using it, though, you really have to use it fresh, right? Or do you... Oh, yeah. You know, what's we'll, your, you what's can, your time frame on You that? can freeze it. Uh, yeah. So we we go out and harvest several hundred pounds. Uh, we use it the next, uh, the next day or two. However, there have been times where we didn't get enough and we had to go to another forest. And so yeah. uh, we just froze it, use it again. It was great. Uh, every year we make a magnanimous IPA, and that uses uh, royal fur uh, huh. bows. And so we go out to our, our, our Portland sales rep or sales manager Tim uh, has a has a fur farm. So we go over there, huh. get a whole bunch of fur tips, and or I guess cut off like parts of the branches, and uh, we freeze those because we don't make it for a while after the actual fur is ready for it. Okay. Yeah. Of course, your sales manager is a, is a lumberjack. I mean, it's, it's Oregon, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what other ways do you incorporate local local ingredients? I mean, Oregon is a state with a large agricultural uh, yeah. you know, uh, community. Um, lots and lots of fruit comes out of Oregon. Oh, yeah. Um, and we use a lot of Oregon fruit products, purees, too. Okay. Um, it's local, right? It's, it's Oregon, Oregon, it's fruit. Oregon fruit products. It says it in the name. Uh, we work with a lot of, uh, well, actually, I think it's he's one of our uh, one of our electricians, I believe, has uh, a couple beehives. So we've used his beer, or his, sorry, his his honey in some of our beers. Uh, our head brewer made a mixed ferment saison with ginger and honey, with a collaboration with uh, Scarlet Lane in Indiana. Um, that's on tap at, at Finns right now. Um, so that was really fun to be able to use. A lot of local local honey. Uh, One of the things about Astoria, you know, it's right there on the mouth of the Columbia River, right on the coast, you know, and so it's a, a wet environment. It's, you know, there's salt in the air. Yeah. How does how does an environment impact, you know, the way that, that you all taste things and then by extension how you uh, design and brew? The barrel cellar is nice and happy because of the humidity yeah. out there. So it, it's... Uh, Talking with, with the guys at our mutual friend brewing, uh, barrel aging in Denver, they said they have a lot of issues with loss of, uh, of barrels going dry. Right. Um, well, not a lot of issues. They're they're doing just fine. But uh, but yeah. So higher, we, maintenance. Higher, higher maintenance. Higher maintenance. Higher maintenance barrel aging. Yeah. So at, at least at least from their their perspective. So we uh, haven't run into that yet. So that's really nice. Uh, we work pretty closely with a couple hop farms and. Uh, we're able to get really good fresh hops, so we dry, so we make a uh, fresh hop IPA in cans every year called Fresh IPA. I know, uh, creative, super creative name, uh, but it gets the point across. We drive uh, our, re- our reefer refrigerated trailer over to whatever we we always pick one hop farm to work with. We've done Crosby in the past. This year's with Roy Farms Azaka hops. So we drive out there, pick up 300 plus pounds of hops drive it back, use it the next day. Um, so it, I know everybody uses hops, but it, we kind of feel like in the Northwest, it's it's kind of like the terroir of the, of the area. Right. Uh, so, yeah. 
That's interesting. So Crosby is an Oregon hops farm, yeah. but uh, Roy Farms is Yakima. Yeah, they're in Moxie, Washington. Moxie, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's that's not too far away from you guys. I it's a it's a trek. <laughs> uh, it's it's like I think it's a five hour drive. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, we're still we, we go over to, to Yakima for hop selection. We yeah yeah, but we like to work with different farms. Cool. Yeah. So, what's next? What do you have in barrels right now that people uh, haven't seen yet? And uh, how are you going to yeah. next rock the world, Dave? <laughs> Uh, What's going to be your next hot review by DontDrinkBeer.com? Oh gosh, yeah, uh, it's. I'm really excited for uh, my barrel fermented lager finished with a mixed culture that's heavy on Brett. Okay. Uh, that's definitely not going to be uh, the most popular one coming out. Uh, oh, why not? If, oh, because it's not a stout. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, had, yeah. I, I had last night uh, had some uh, Allagash Pilsner. Oh, that was that was wonderful. Was yeah. Spectacular. Yeah. I mean. Well, maybe it is. Maybe I'm totally wrong. I, it felt it felt more like a passion project than. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm really excited about. We did a uh, collaboration with Kex Brewing in Iceland. We made a hazelnut Icelandic sea salt stout huh. sitting in cognac barrels. So a pretty, it's basically like a Nutella kind of stout. Yeah. Excited for that one. Uh, Going full pastry. <laughs> more or less. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. More barley wine. Yeah. Definitely more barley okay. wine. Uh, and always Matryoshka. Always Matryoshka. Every winter. All always right. Matryoshka. Uh, Dave Coyne. Yeah. Thanks for sitting down with me on the uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Yeah, thanks for talking. Appreciate your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, if people want to learn more about Fort George Brewery, where do they go? FortGeorgeBrewery.com. Great place to go. Uh, we also have an Instagram account. I believe it's just Fort George Brewery. Best way, best place to go is just to come out to Astoria. I agree. Come, come drink a beer. Eat some pizza. Yeah. Have a beer. Yeah. Look yeah. at the river. Watch the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a beautiful spot. I've been there a few times and always enjoyed our, uh, our travels there. Thanks, man. Well, thanks, Dave. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope you hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. I uh, hope you subscribe to the magazine. Beerandbrewing.com is the website. Click on that button. Say subscribe. Um, learn great things from brewers like Dave that share their secrets within the pages of the magazine. Tune in next week for another episode. Cheers. Cheers, you guys. Many thanks to this episode's sponsors. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Join your peers April 8th through 11th in Denver for the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America. And bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.